Section four of the Vortex Blaster by E. E. Doc Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section four. Hell was out for noon, with the little speedster still inert. Cloud had moved fast, too. Trained mind and trained body had been working at top speed and in perfect coordination. There just simply hadn't been enough time. If he could have got what he wanted, ten full seconds or even nine, he could have made it. But— In spite of what happened, Cloud defended his action then and thereafter. Damn it all, he had to take the 8.3-second reading. Another tenth of a second and his bomb wouldn't have fitted. He didn't have the five percent leeway he wanted, remember, and no, he couldn't wait for another match either. His screens were leaking like sieves, and if he had waited for another chance they would have picked him up fried to a greasy cinder in his own lord. The bomb sped truly and struck the target in direct central impact exactly as scheduled. It penetrated perfectly. The neocarboloy casing lasted just long enough. That frightful charge of duodeck exploded, if not exactly at the center of the vortex, at least near enough to the center to do the work. In other words, Cloud's figuring had been close, very close, but the time had been altogether too short. The flitter was not even out of the crater when the bomb went off. And not only the bomb, for Cloud's vague forebodings were materialized, and more. The staggeringly immense energy of the vortex merged with that of the detonating duodeck to form an utterly incomprehensible whole. In part, the hellish flood of boiling lava in that devil's cauldron was beaten downward into a bowl by the sheer stupendous force of the blow. In part, it was hurled abroad in masses, in gouts and streamers. And the raging wind of the explosion's front seized the fragments and tore and worried them to bits, hurling them still faster along their paths of violence. And air, so densely compressed as to be all intents and purposes a solid, smote the walls of the crater, smote them so that they crumbled, crushed outward through the hard-packed ground, broke up into jaggedly irregular blocks which hurtled screamingly away through the atmosphere. Also the concussion wave, or the explosion front, or flying fragments or something, struck the two loose bombs, so that they too exploded and added their contribution to the already stupendous concentration of force. They were not close enough to the flitter to wreck it of themselves, but they were close enough so that they didn't do her, or her pilot, a bit of good. The first terrific wave buffeted the flyer while Cloud's right hand was in the air, shooting across the panel to turn on the berg. The impact jerked the arm downward and sideways, both bones of the forearm snapping as it struck the ledge. The second one, an instant later, broke his left leg. Then the debris began to arrive. Chunks of solid or semi-molten rock slammed against the hull, knocking off wings and control surfaces. Gobs of vicious slag slapped it liquidly, freezing into and clogging up jets and orifices. The little ship was hurtled hither and yon, in the grip of forces she could no more resist than can the floating leaf resist the waters of a cataract. 
and Cloud's brain was as addled as an egg by the vicious concussions which were hitting him from so many different directions, and so nearly all at once. Nevertheless, with his one arm and his one leg, and the few cells of his brain that were still at work, the physicist was still in the fight. By sheer force of will and nerve he forced his left hand across the gyrating key-bank to the Bergenholm switch. He snapped it, and in the instant of its closing a vast, calm peace descended blanket-like. For, fortunately, the Berg still worked. The flitter and all her contents and appurtenances were inertialess. Nothing material could buffet her or hurt her now. She would waft effortlessly away from a feather's lightest possible touch. Cloud wanted to faint then, but he didn't quite. Instead, foggily, he tried to look back at the crater. Nine-tenths of his visiplates were out of commission, but he finally got a view. Good! It was out. He wasn't surprised. He had been quite confident that it would be. It wasn't scattered around, either. It couldn't be, for his only possibility of smearing the shot was on the upper side, not the lower. His next effort was to locate the secondary observatory, where he had to land, and in that, too, he was successful. He had enough intelligence left to realize that, with practically all of his jets clogged and his wings and tail shot off, he couldn't land his little vessel inert. Therefore he would have to land her free. And by dint of light and extremely unorthodox use of what jets he had left in usable shape, he did land her free almost within the limits of the observatory's field, and having landed, he inerted her. But as has been intimated, his brain was not working so well. He had held his ship inertialess quite a few seconds longer than he thought, and he did not even think of the buffetings she had taken. As a result of these things, however, her intrinsic velocity did not match, anywhere near exactly, that of the ground upon which she lay. Thus, when Cloud cut his Bergenholm, restoring thereby to the flitter the absolute velocity and inertia she had had before going free, there resulted a distinctly anticlimactic crash. There was a terrific bump as the motionless vessel collided with the equally motionless ground, and Storm Cloud, Vortex Blaster, went out like the proverbial light. Help came, of course, and on the double. The pilot was unconscious, and the flitter's door could not be opened from the outside, but those were not insuperable obstacles. A plate, already loose, was sheared away. The pilot was carefully lifted out of his prison and rushed to base hospital in the meat can, already in attendance. And later, in a private office of that hospital, the gray-clad chief of the Atomic Research Laboratory sat and waited, but not patiently. How is he, Lacey? he demanded. As the Surgeon General entered the room, he's going to live, isn't he? Oh, yes, Phil, definitely yes, Lacey replied briskly. He has a good skeleton, very good indeed. The burns are superficial and will yield quite readily to treatment. The deeper, delayed effects of the radiation to which he was exposed can be neutralized entirely effectively. Thus he will not need even a Phillips treatment for the replacement of damaged parts except possibly for a few torn muscles and so on. But he was smashed up pretty badly, wasn't he? I know that he had a broken arm and a broken leg, at least. 
Simple fractures only, entirely negligible. Lacey waved aside with an airy gesture such small ills as broken bones. He'll be out in a few weeks. How soon can I see him? the lensman physicist asked. There are some important things to take up with him, and I've got a personal message for him that I must give him as soon as possible. Lacey pursed his lips. Then, you may see him now, he decided. He is conscious and strong enough. Not too long, though, Phil. Fifteen minutes at most. QX, and thanks. And a nurse led the visiting lensman to Cloud's bedside. Hi, Stoop, he boomed cheerfully. Stoop being short for stupendous, not stupid. Hi, Chief. Glad to see somebody. Sit down. You're the most wanted man in the galaxy, the visitor informed the invalid, not accepting even Kemble Kinnison. Look at this spool of tape, and it's only the first one. I brought it along for you to read at your leisure. As soon as any planet finds out that we've got a sure enough vortex blower outer, an expert who can really call his shots, and the news travels mighty fast, that planet sends in a double urgent Class A prime demand for first call upon your services. Sirius Four got in first by a whisker, it seems. But Aldebaran, too, was so close a second that it was a photo finish, and all the channels have been jammed ever since. Canopus, Vega, Rigel, Spica, they all want you. Everybody from Alsaken to Vandemar and back. We told them right off that we could not receive personal delegations. We had to almost throw a couple of pink-haired Chicladorians out bodily to make them believe that we meant it and that the age and condition of the vortex involved not priority of requisition would govern. QX? Absolutely, Cloud agreed. That's the only way it could be, I should think. So forget about this psychic trauma. No, I don't mean that, the lensman corrected himself hastily. You know what I mean. The will to live is the most important factor in any man's recovery. And too many worlds need you too badly to have you quit now, not? I suppose so, Cloud acquiesced, but somberly. I'll get out of here in short order, and I'll keep on pecking away until one of those vortices finishes what this one started. You'll die of old age then, son, the lensman assured him. We got full data, all the information we need. We know exactly what to do to your screens. Next time nothing will come through except light, and only as much of that as you feel like admitting. You can wait as close to a vortex as you please, for as long as you please, until you get exactly the activity and time interval that you want. You will be just as comfortable and just as safe as though you were home in bed. Sure of that? Absolutely, or at least as sure as we can be of anything that hasn't happened yet. But I see that your guardian angel here is eyeing her clock somewhat pointedly, so I'd better be doing a flit before they toss me down a shaft. Clear ether, Storm. Clear ether, Chief. And that is how Storm Cloud, atomic physicist, became the most narrowly specialized specialist in all the annals of science. How he became Storm Cloud Vortex Blaster, the galaxy's only Vortex Blaster. End of section four. End of the Vortex Blaster by E. E. Doc Smith. This recording by Phil Chenevere, April 2012, Baton Rouge, Louisiana.